0: Again, it's a blessing to see everyone here this morning. I ask you to open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6 as we continue our study in the book of Galatians. We're going to read the first five verses as we consider the topic of strength in numbers. Let us begin reading Galatians chapter 6 in verse 1, Brethren, If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another for every man shall bear his own burden the apostle paul makes a very strange transition here in the book of galatians he's went from discussing how we have this battle or warfare in the flesh in chapter 5 as he describes in verse 17 for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. He has went from discussing this paradigm that we exist in as believers, as regenerate individuals, children of God who have been born again by divine grace, and now have come to a knowledge of the truth. He's given us this paradigm through which we are living. And then he transitions into this strange instance of describing now kind of commitment one towards another that we have you know we live in a very technology driven society and this portion of scripture seems almost absent to us to some degree because we as it were have went from the andy griffith area or era of large front porches to the technology era of large back decks right I mean, seriously, in in my neighborhood, you drive by and my front porch, and I love sitting on the front porch, but my front porch isn't even big enough to have a chair on it. And my back deck is huge. And you can sit back there and have your seclusion, your hermit crab type environment and just be avoiding everybody. And we can have all of our life kind of designated to just a screen. All the social interaction we get, all of the fellowship we get, Some people will post very often, I enjoy church today from the living room. (laughs) And whereas that's true, sometimes you can enjoy a good sermon, but you're missing something at times. You're missing something. And this is what this portion of Scripture addresses as we look at the body of Christ and the strength in numbers. We're going to see here how Paul is exhorting them in their warfare he begins to show that this warfare is not just a single individual battle. Sometimes I feel like it is. Sometimes I think that my warfare is just by myself, and I am just a single individual fighting by myself, and nobody else is around me. I'm doing it all alone. I'm doing it my way. But in actuality, I'm just a soldier. You know, if you look at a chess board, and I tried to teach my boys how to play chess one time, and it lasted about you know, 20 minutes before the chess pieces started getting slung at each other, right? It was kind of funny. I thought, I have something that'll use their brain, and then all of a sudden, how dare you take my queen? And and pieces start flying one against another. Well, in chess, you know, we see all these different kind of characters. You see knights and queens, and you see uh, rooks and bishops, and you see pawns, and we see order of importance, but in actuality, in God's army, it's God and then pawns. we're all just here on the same level and we have to remember that we need each other. We need each other. And it shows that this warfare is worked out first. Brethren, it's showing that it's worked out together. It's not worked out separate from each other. It's worked out as individuals in a body. Not just separate from each other but together combined under the head of Jesus Christ. But equally, it's kind of interesting because you see this transition. We think about how the Spirit itself works specifically in an individual. And when we think of the Spirit of God coming on a person, you can typically hear the word revival and you think of this exciting moment where we're having this overwhelming sense of the Spirit coming upon us and God is just overwhelming us and that's true to some extent. But very often, the Spirit of God, as it says in John chapter 3, is like a wind. Now, sometimes that wind comes like a hurricane, right? And specifically in regeneration, we can see that it came like a hurricane on the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus going on the road to Damascus. But sometimes it can come very much more quietly, like a summer breeze. The wind doesn't have to come in its extravagant fashion as it does with other people. And here when we see the Spirit of God coming upon a person in their warfare it's not always as if it is coming on them in the same degree you know last weekend i loved it right i mean we we had i think i counted on saturday there was about 70 people here the singing was phenomenal um i didn't have to do most of it <laughs> you know other people were leading singing and I, I was just loving it and it was a blessing and uh, you know brother barry and i and brother ronnie all got to have a break from leading singing most of the time and we we got to sit down in a pew right It was blessing and the Spirit, the amount of people, the powerful sermons holding over into the final climax to where we got to enjoy communion and that was such a spiritual moment. But often the Spirit doesn't work in that way all the time. You know, Sometimes we think the Spirit is always manifest as it is in its most evident moments. But sometimes the Spirit of God is working as it says, and I wrote this down because I wanted to read this. I'm going to to turn that off. From this verse we see is the Expositor's Bible Commentary notes, Christians need to learn that it is in concrete situations rather than in emotional highs that the reality of the Holy Spirit in their lives is demonstrated. And what that means, it's not in this huge moment where we're lifted up on cloud nine when the Holy Spirit is really working in us, and it is in that moment. But very often it's in those lower moments, in the valley, in the moment where we think he's not working. In the day-in, day-out discipleship of believers is when God is working in us very often the most which tells me I need to be aware of how he's working in me on a daily basis in a communal sense, interrelational sense, not just me as an individual who is sitting here underneath the Spirit of God hoping for some extravagant emotional high, but the day-in, day-out movement of the church of God is when the Spirit often works in us the most. And don't be me wrong, I love those emotional highs, right? <laughs> I love it when I can really sing a hymn and feel as though I'm touching my Savior. But at the same time, it's those concrete moments in which God is working in us. Well, here we're gonna see as it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, let's start in verse one. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such in one in the spirit of meekness. Um First, we see that this is addressed to not just the ministry in general, but the brethren, and as I would put it, all the church in general. This is the job of every individual in the pew to help sustain the church body. There isn't one person that is excluded from this specific ministry that Paul gives as surrounding each other in this warfare. But when he says, if a man be overtaken in a fault, he is not saying that... He is not saying that... This is speaking of an unregenerate individual. A man that is overtaken in a fault is not a person who is dead in their sins. This is speaking of a believer in Jesus Christ who, as it were, has been caught off guard and slipped up. A person who, through whatever kind of circumstance that has led to this, has gotten to the point to where they've slipped a little bit. And this can happen to anybody, as we're going to see as he gives the warning to those who are actually doing the ministry to his fellow believers. Well, when he says, which are spiritual restoring? Well, he say with, if a man be overtaken in a fault, the idea is a slip, or as it were, as somebody who is walking being overtaken by a runner behind them. They're unaware it's going to happen. Now, sometimes I, unbeknownst to me, sometimes seek out things that are not that good for me. Everybody does this. But nobody just goes off by themselves and says, today I'm going to dishonor God on purpose, right? We don't just say, today is going to be the day that I dishonor God. It's typically in our minds we look back at it and say, what in the world happened there? What was I thinking? That's the typical way in which it happens. You see, sin is like that in a believer's life. We don't necessarily even though we sometimes desire from the lust of our heart to seek out things that are contrary to God's grace, at the same time, we don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to dishonor God today. Isn't that going to be great? No, it works, in a sense, as a slip-up. This is why 1 Peter chapter 5 describes Satan as what? A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And typical, as Satan does, an imitation of that which is true. You have Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and then Satan is a cheap imitation of the true God that we see. Satan, thinking of himself as the God of this world, which will one day be um, completely punished for everything he has done, has an imitation of the true God and is a roaring lion going back and forth. Now, that does tell me he's not omniscient, right? He's going back and forth. God is everywhere present, nowhere absent. But Satan himself goes back and forth, back and forth. But it does give us this warning that ourselves, when we are in our Christian service, we can slip and we can be pulled into something in which we didn't realize we could be pulled into. Well, he says, you which are spiritual, restore such a one. This idea of restore, has it's the same word that is used in Greek to describe what happens when a bone is broken. When you restore something, you restore it by setting it back in its proper place. That's an interesting way to think about church discipline, isn't it? It's not that you're walking up and saying, Oh, your arms hurt? Let me squeeze it more, right? (laughs) I hate to see that you're hurt. Let me make you hurt more. (laughs) That's not the idea of church discipline and inter-church communion and fellowship. But the idea is when there is a fracture in the body, you're going to set it back to where it needs to be. And see, when a church undergoes church discipline, or even when we ourselves are seeking out an individual and saying, what's hap- you're falling in and slipping into the wiles of the devil, you're fulfilling the lust of the flesh, we need to talk at the same time. This isn't something that we're doing just out of pure meanness. As it's been said multiple times in parenting books, and when you're reading books about uh, adopting children, it says, never punish out of anger. Likewise, this restoration is not something out of anger, but it's wanting to get the body back right. It's wanting to get the body back in place. You see, church discipline is out of love. I've always found it interesting that in The Gospel of Matthew, we find the first instance of the word church in Matthew 16, when Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church. So immediately Christ defines for us how the church is built on God's sovereign grace. When he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, he's uh, referring directly to the fact that that through God, the Father, the revelation of Jesus Christ comes, and it's upon that revelation and God's sovereignty through which the church is built. Amen? And without God building the church, there is no church that will be built. Without God giving revelation of Jesus Christ, there is never going to be any church in this world because it takes the sovereignty of God to reveal Christ in your heart, and it equally takes God's blessings to reveal Him in your mind. And without God's sovereignly blessing, we would not have a church. Amen? There would be no believers in Jesus Christ apart from God's sovereign grace. It takes God's sovereignty. So, first God, in Matthew 16, defines what the church is, how it's built, and who builds it. And then, yet, two chapters later, in Matthew 18, it shouldn't surprise us that he moves from the institution of the church to then interrelational communion and fellowship he begins with talking about entering the kingdom as a child and he talks about we should not offend any little one. He goes into the fact that if a brother has offended you, you go to him alone and then if he do- will not hear you, you go to him with other witnesses and if he still will not heal here, then you go to the church and let the church make in wisdom under the word of God a ruling in this sense because the church is an accountability group. To restore, to restore that fellowship between brother and sister in Christ, between brother and brother, between sister and sister, between all those in the body of Christ, to restore that fellowship, to mend that fractured bone. And he ends in Matthew 18 by, you know, they ask, well, Lord, how many times should I forgive somebody, right? <laughs> Seven times? And Jesus looks and says, 70 times. Yeah, he just basically says, there's not a number, really. When Christ uses that phrase, what he's saying here is you're putting a small number on it. See, somebody might say, the reason I make this distinction because somebody may um, do that multiplication and say, all right, I can get to this point. I'm done with you. (laughs) I fulfilled Christ's legal commandment. But then he says, no, the idea isn't a specific number. The idea is there. What you're thinking at is very minute compared to the forgiveness I'm telling you to forgive them. And you see, even in church Practice. It's more than just we are here being regulated under the word of God in worship, but equally the way we commune with each other in fellowship is going to fall under the word of God. We understand that we have this principle of restoring one another, restoring, fixing that fractured break. Well, here when he says... Restore such and one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, I shall also be tempted. You'll see, not only that he's restoring them, but he's restoring them in what—in the spirit of meekness. This word meekness has an interesting definition. When you look past, we often think of it just being humility, but it goes past that. When Christ said in Matthew chapter five that the meek shall inherit the earth, that word meek is used to describe a horse that's been broken. A horse that its master has got it to the point to where if the master turns right, just tugs, it turns. If the master turns left, it tugs. You see this idea of meekness is more than just humility, but it is humility under its master, God, saying, God, whatever you do, I will do, whatever you say, I will say, wherever you go, I will go, my God, I will do what you command. So this idea of spirit of meekness and humility is working out as a broken, domesticated animal. Let that sink in. A domesticated animal. I don't like to think of myself as domesticated. You know, I, I realized last night um, we went out for um, our our 11th year anniversary, and you know, Rebecca said, well, "What do you want to go?" And I, you know, I, I was starting to think about it, and I was like, "Well." I've been married 11 years, I have two kids, um, I don't have any hobbies anymore, I don't know where do we go, <laughs> you know, right, you know, it's like y'all, I laughed, I said, y'all taking everything from me, <laughs> so we went to a bookstore, because that's about all I got left, <laughs> you know, I don't like to think of myself as domesticated and housebroken, but at the same time, I've gotten to that point, point. <laughs> and as, as a humble man, uh, husband, and father, I've gotten to that point to where I'm housebroken, finally, uh, you know. But in, essence, in all actuality, every Christian should be broken. Every Christian should be a domesticated animal in this sense. And it's not only something that we should be, but it's a character trait. As he says earlier in Galatians chapter 5, when he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. And then he immediately says meekness. That sense of humility that we have as a child of God, a character trait, he says, should equally be worked out as we are seeking those other individuals to whom have been fractured from the body of Christ. He says that is the way that we do it. Now, this is equally what Paul commands Timothy to do as a minister of God. You see, this is something that is given throughout the Word of God. Second Timothy chapter 2, when Paul commands Timothy as a servant of God, And the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patience. Now that is a description of what the ministry is supposed to be. Now when he says must not strive, you're not warring, you're not fighting, you're not just uh, have a warmonger's mentality, but the mentality of the ministry is gentleness, apt to teach, and patience. I must be gentle I must teach, and I must be patient while doing it. But then he says, in reference to those to whom he's teaching very often, in meekness, in humility, in brokenness under God's grace, instructing those that oppose themselves. If peradventure, God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So he says we are to be meek to the individuals to whom we are teaching. And he says, now, we have to understand that God is the one that grants repentance. Amen? If God will peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Ultimately, their repentance, ultimately the work of God in their life is dependent on God. But I am yet to still continue to follow them, instructing them in meekness. And I love the way that it words this, those that oppose themselves. Now, if you're opposed for telling somebody about the truth of grace or even telling somebody that they've been fractured from the body of Christ, if you yourself feel as though you are opposed, remember that you're not the one really being opposed. A child of God, when he goes against the word of God, is really opposing themselves because their identity is in Christ. But we have this view of meekness. Well, let's continue. We are to help those that have been fractured from the body of Christ in a spirit of meekness And we are equally supposed to, further described in verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That phrase, bear ye one another's burdens, can be summed up in the phrase, share the load. Uh, We used to do this in school, and it ended up hurting folks a few times. You get one person, and you you can't really hold somebody up by themselves. But if you get a lot of people and everybody just puts two fingers underneath them and surround them, you can hold an individual up by each person putting two fingers underneath them. Why is that? Because the sheer weight of that individual is being held evenly across all those fingers. It's kind of strange how that works. Now if you move a few people's hands, the weight increases on everybody else and that person is going to end up getting hurt. Trust me, (laughs) I've seen it happen. And we stop trying to do that. The idea is here that as we help that person that has been fractured from the body of Christ being pulled back into the body. It's not just that we're getting them back in the body to sit in the pew, but we're equally helping them underneath this burden that they have had. And this burden can be anything. This burden could possibly be a sin that has overwhelmed them, but it could possibly also be depression, frustration, sadness, the loss of a loved one, There is nothing more encouraging to an individual who has lost, let's say, whether it be their spouse or their child or whether it be one of their loved ones to be surrounded by the body of Christ in that time of need. Why is that? We started by saying that this message was going to be called Strength in Numbers. It's Strength in Numbers. It's easy to lose sight of your joy in Christ if you are sitting in darkness by yourself. But if you are surrounded by individuals that are reflecting the light of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ around you, how much harder is it going to be to be sad? It's going to be a lot harder, isn't it? When you're surrounded by a community of believers who are smiling, who are rejoicing, who weep when you weep, who rejoice when you rejoice, who when you are sitting down there, sadness, and you come along like Ezekiel and sat where they sat, how much more are you going to be able to stand up and rejoice with them when you are surrounded by individuals who are praising God? It's a lot easier, isn't it? It's harder to do it alone. I mentioned this multiple times in the past couple of weeks, and I mentioned it again right now. It should not surprise us again that when Satan tempted Jesus, was not when he was with the multitudes, was not when he was with. Uh, his disciples. But when Satan tempted Jesus Christ, the Son of God manifest in the flesh, was when he was alone in the wilderness. And if he does it to the Son of God, you know when we're by ourselves, he's going to do it to us. This should exhort us in some sense to um, seek out the body of Christ. Now, I've been amazed, you know, we have, (laughs) it's kind of strange, and I'm not saying this to belittle when I say this, but we have Multi-Campus Ministries is what it's called. And I wish I could get through to believers, to Christians, that when you're in the hospital, that screen's not going to visit you. When you're in your most dire moment, that screen you look at um, on Sunday morning... And I, you know, I love the fact that we live stream now. That way those that are um, bedridden, those that can't be here, those that are sick can still enjoy the Word of God. Praise God for that. But it's a ministry to those that can't get there. It should not be a substitute to the communion of the saints. Amen? It shouldn't be the substitute. Now, it is a supplement to those who can't help, those that are stuck in the home, those that are traveling. It's there to minister to their needs. But so many people in our culture have made it, instead of a supplement, a substitute. You see, that's a problem, that's a problem. Because it's not just the preaching of the Word we need, which we do need the preaching of the Word. It is how God convicts us, converts us, sanctifies us in a practical sense, in an experiential sense, that we have life and immortality brought to light through the gospel. Yet, it is equally through inter-church fellowship that we are often lifted up. We're often, as it were, have a brother and sister come and pick us up and carry us when we can't carry ourselves. You see, that's what we do. That's what a church body does. It comes in and it bears the load. There are times that even your pastor gets weak. Sometimes I need you to come underneath me and pick me up. You know, I I try not to complain too much in front of y'all because y'all think if the pastor is getting discouraged, we're, we're having bad times, right? But you'd be amazed how many times somebody will call. And I'll think that is exactly what I needed then. A few weeks ago, I was struggling with some frustrations, some personal frustrations, and we all do. And I was getting a little irritated, a little overwhelmed. You know, sometimes my cup runneth over, and sometimes it runneth over on my cup. (laughs) That day, it was running over on my cup. Rebecca could see the frustration in my face and her typical, I don't know if she's trying to get me out of the house or if she wants me to run because it is therapeutic to me. You can say that sounds like torture. It's my therapy. I like to run. It's self-care. Well, I go to the track to run. I get one mile down, and I typically run three miles and then start for a water break. Uh, and that's my thing, and I love it. Well, I get one mile in, I see somebody from town, and... He's like, hey, man, how you doing? Somebody I went to school with, and I'm still half discouraged. He looks at me and said, man, I want you to know I've been, I try to watch your sermons every Sunday. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes I feel, I feel like everything is just spinning my wheels. But God knew I needed that right then. From a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, that friend of mine has no idea that that encouraged me more that week than anything else did. But God knew that I needed it. And that's happened multiple times in in my own life, in the past couple of weeks, in the past months, in my years, when somebody, one person who had no idea that I needed their encouragement, called me, lifted me up. I was falling, snowballing down the mountain, and yet somebody came under my arm, grabbed me by the side, and helped me keep going. Bear ye one another's burdens. And he says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He gives this view that this is fulfilling the law of Christ in doing so. Fulfilling the law of Christ. You'll remember in John chapter 13, in verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Now, you'll first recognize this isn't a new commandment in one sense. This is from the Old Testament. This is from the book of Leviticus. This is reinforced multiple times when people would ask him, What is the chief commandment? What is the second commandment? What is this? And he would say, Love thy God with all thy heart. And the second greatest commandment is this, "That I'll Love thy neighbor as thyself. But the way that it is new is because it is attached to an example or an object. When he says that ye love one another, he says, As... He connects it to an example that it was never connected to. Because Christ did not just love in this, I want to be seen sense. He didn't just meet the need. Christ came. He took on a human body. He washed the feet of sinners. He loved the unlovable who didn't love him, and he died for them and was resurrected the third day for their justification. Christ says, as I love you who hate me, love each other. You see, Christ takes it to a new place. He connects it to the example of himself as he says, a new commandment I give unto you. And he says this in verse 35. Speaking of this law of Christ, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one another. (laughs) You know, it does not say, by this all men will see your selfie of you serving other people, and by that they will know. This isn't something that they're broadcasting out. It's a natural way of life. It's not something that is done once a year, but it's something that is worked out all throughout the year in the body of Christ serving one another. It's a character trait that is permeating from the house of God, as light permeates, even underneath the door. You can shut the door, but light is going to get out. It's not something that they're here trying to just say, look at what we're doing, right? It's something that's just done. Like a body that is here serving itself. As the, you know, The human body, its brain, the eyes, the immune system is so amazing. I mean, you think about the brain is the most complex computer that's ever been made. The eyes are so complex that we should actually be seeing everything upside down, and science doesn't understand how we see it right side up. The human body itself, the way that it takes care of itself, you get cut and your body heals. The most resilient machine ever made is the human body. And I don't have to think, Josh Winslet breathe. Josh Winslet breathe. I don't have to think, okay, heart, keep beating. Come on, heart. Keep going. I don't have to think, oh, I'm cut. Hold on. It's fixing itself. Hold on. Give me a moment. I don't have to do that. Why? Because the body does it naturally. And the idea is here that we're not, and we are pursuing love as a congregation. That is what... Christ is commanding them to do, but when he says that ye love one another, and by this all men shall know that ye are my disciples if ye love one another. He's saying this isn't just something you're doing once a year or taking pictures of yourself, but this is what you do naturally as the body of Christ. You're just doing it. It just happens. He says, fulfill ye the law of Christ. Okay. He continues You see, verse 2 describes what is said in verse 1a, the first half of verse 1. But verses 3 through 5 are an exposition or commentary on the second half of verse 1. Notice this. Verse 1 is described in verse 2. The first half of verse 1 is described in verse 2. And when he says, "...consider thyself, lest thou also be tempted," it is described in verses 3 through 5. So Paul gives the immediate command that he gives in springboarding from this warfare that is not alone to then describing it in a two-part section. When he says, "...bear ye one another's burdens," then he then goes on in verse 3 to say, "...for if a man think himself, he is describing or further expounding on where he says, consider thyself, lest thou also be tempted. He is now talking about those who are spiritual, who are supposed to restore other people. Now this phrase, spiritual, is not saying that those who are the leadership in Christ, under Christ, the ministry of the gospel. Now it's true that the ministry is supposed to be here to preach the word and minister to them in that fashion but when he says those who are spiritual, he's describing all those spiritual in the congregation. Even in Acts chapter 6, as the apostles were desiring to commit themselves to study of the word and prayer, they ordained other men to meet the needs of the congregation. What does that tell us a little bit about church fellowship? That tells us that this restoring and loving and taking care of one another and bearing one another's burdens happens outside. It happens within, but it also happens outside of the context of the pulpit. It happens in the context of the pew. It happens in the context of you. (laughs) And I didn't do that on purpose to rhyme, but it does. It goes to the pew. It goes to you. It is for you to do this one with another. But he says... In reference to that, he says, consider thyself. And in verse 1, you notice he says, brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual. But then at the latter half of that verse, he says, consider thyself. Now, something that you may miss in people think that the thys and these are all confusing in the King James Bible. It is not. And I actually prefer them. And this is the reason. Pronouns with a T in the King James Bible are here for us to show singular pronoun, one person, one person. The Ys in the KJV are plural. So when Paul says, ye which are spiritual, he's speaking indiscriminately to all of the church. All of you, ye, you are to do this. But then he looks to each individual separately and says, consider thyself as an individual. So the whole body is to be the people that are here collectively seeking to restore those, but at the same time, he says, consider thyself. Now, that means, first, I'm not to consider you. (laughs) You're to consider yourself. I'm to consider myself. Paul would equally say this in 1 Corinthians uh, when he spoke that he keeps his body under subjection. He keeps his body under subjection, so that he himself would not be a castaway. That means a person that has went aside from where they are trying to follow. And he says he even himself, if Paul considered the possibility of becoming a castaway, I'm talking about a man that wrote most of the New Testament. I'm talking about an individual that preached in more countries, more continents, than I will probably ever see, than I want to (laughs) see. Not just that I have seen, or do see, but will want to see. He's preached in more places. God used him instrumentally to preach to Gentiles and to go throughout Europe and Asia Minor. Yet Paul himself said, I can become a cast And this is why he says, Consider thyself, lest thou also be tempted. He says we shouldn't forget when we're doing this that we ourselves can be tempted. I will use this also as an analogy because he goes on to say, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. this is my personal opinion, but I think it can apply to the text here. I don't think we can serve one another unless we are considering ourselves. Why do I say that? To be able to serve somebody in Christ, it takes a certain amount of empathy to consider ourselves, where we are, where they're at, to place ourselves in their shoes and to realize, if not for the grace of God, thus would I be. Even in Matthew chapter 5 when it says, blessed are the merciful, that comes from a word which doesn't just mean mercy, but which equally means a person who is placing themselves in the shoes of another. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews chapter 2 when it's speaking of Christ who was made flesh. He was made like unto his brethren, that he may show them what? mercy. So the only way that we can actually fully show an individual mercy is how? By considering ourselves and understanding that if not for the grace of God, His sustaining power, His mercy, the fellowship of the saints, the communion of the saints, if it was not for God working in me constantly, I would be far worse than the worst wretch that has ever existed And he says, consider thyself. When he says the spiritual person, but the fact is that the spiritual person, a person who is mature in Christ, is considering himself. See, that is also implicit, that a person who is spiritual is considering themselves and who they are and what they are. And he says in verse 4, "...but let every man prove his own work, considering himself, again examining himself, that he should be rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Don't look at the inadequacies of other and think you're better than somebody else." And then he says in verse 5, "...for every man shall bear his own burden." Two ways we bear our own burden. One, each one of us is part of this ministry, but but equally each one of us is going to bear our burden before Christ. Now I want to give you a little bit of encouragement in closing. Because this inter-church fellowship can be so easily lost. And it's really hard to find, but I want to give you a little bit of encouragement. You know, the average church size in America is between 75 and 150 people. I know, that sounds like a Primitive Baptist mega church, right? <laughs> that, that, that sounds like a PB mega church. You know, get a satellite campus. We got over a hundred. You know, it's, it's but in actuality, the average church size in America is between seventy-five and one hundred and fifty, somewhere in there. So I would say anywhere from one hundred and fifty or beneath has this specific strength. You know, when you get to where the church is so big. And this isn't to condemn, again, this is not, but this is showing the strength of the average or smaller church. When I walk into some places, and I may sit down, there is so many people there. It's almost like, I don't know if I, I shouldn't be admitting this, but in my teenage years, I went to city stages, and you go out there and walk these city blocks, and there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people there and you're, you know, I'm having a great time because, you know, I'm just like, this is fun. You know, everybody else is getting claustrophobic and it's amazing to me, but you don't know anybody there. There may be somebody you know six blocks over and you have no idea who they, I mean, you you know they're there, but you can't find them. (laughs) They're there. The average size, the average church in America, the small churches in America have this strength that other people don't. The ability, the ability of community strength in numbers. When I walk in, I know your name. When you walk in, you know my name. We know each other. A lot of the mega church facilities will create, and again, this is not condemnation. This is me pointing out a fact. They create what is called a small group I had a friend tell me recently that he goes to a very, very large Presbyterian church. He said, you know, he don't know, he was laughing, he said, I don't know anybody there. He said, my small group, which is about 30 to 40 people, is my church. (laughs) That's who I see, that's my fellowship, and I thought, that's interesting. Larger groups of people are making, as it were, small churches in their assembly to make up for the lack of community. What does that tell you about yourself? You have something to offer struggling sinners that are looking for peace in Christ. You have fellowship. You have a community. You have a group of people that can bear the burdens of life one with another. You have something to offer. You have the gospel of Christ and the community of the saints. That's something that I promise the world needs. I've told people this. I have seen churches grow both spiritually and numerically under what most of you would probably say was mediocre preaching. And you can think that's what I'm getting right now. Well, I've seen it still happen. But you know why it happened? You know why it happened. Because when you walked in that door, you were overcome with love and with family brought a friend to church to Ebenezer. and I'll close with this. Brought a friend to church to Ebenezer back in 2004, maybe five. And you know, Ebenezer was, we always used to joke and say, that's a silly place, right? It was about 2005 and met every other Sunday and starting to bring some of my friends and y'all know most of them Uh, my brother called us the goon squad some of y'all called them the entourage and that's just y'all know most of them well we brought a friend one Sunday and he was a nominal Christian nominal believer would just go on occasion and we brought him he said man I had a great time and honestly I, I don't even remember what the sermon was that day and I remember who preached that specific day and it probably wasn't that memorable I'm not trying to sound mean Sometimes sermons aren't memorable. Sometimes mine aren't memorable. But he walked out and said there was something different about that day. And he looked and said, y'all really love each other. He said, that was the best worship I've ever had. Honestly, the sermon wasn't good. But something changed in him. because he saw a community of believers, he saw strength in numbers, he saw people wanting to fix the fracture, wanting to bear the burden of other people, he saw a community there, the strength of a small church, the strength of numbers. Let us have this mindset. Let us know that we can do this, that it's not just the pastor, it's not the pulpit, but it's you in the pew. Y'all are more important than me in a lot of ways in all ways. Christ is obviously the most important, but I will tell you, if my preaching is sour every Sunday, no amens, but if my preaching is sour every Sunday and people walk in and they say, my goodness, this congregation loves each other, that will change the world. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your love and thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your wonderful community of believers. Thank you, Lord, for every believer in Jesus Christ that is here today, for every person that is here to worship you in spirit and in truth. Let us, Lord, find strength one with another. Lord, let us be lifted up. Let the fractures be fixed. And Lord, let us, as we begin to fall, be picked up by our brothers and sisters. And Lord, let us be willing to go forward, considering ourselves, having empathy for others, lifting up them also. Gracious God, I pray that when people come in here that they see the love. That Lord, if nothing else is memorable from a morning's worship, if every song was dry, if every song was sung to be heard for its excellency, if every sermon was said and the wisdom of men and every prayer was filled with flamboyant words, I pray, God, that people would walk away and say that those people love each other. God, let your love overwhelm our hearts and let that love that overwhelms us overwhelm this community with your light. We ask in Christ's name and amen.